In part 3, where we address questions that are theological in nature, we cover issues such as the sovereignty of God, suicide, demonic possessions, Sabbath, salvation, sexual dreams, depression, creation, etc. Be enriched as you discover simple biblical responses to some common questions. This morning, I'm going to spend some time answering questions. This is the third part in the series on answering answers to common questions. Uh, we have so far talked about questions on our Christian walk and marriage. Uh, we had uh, questions on our lifestyle. And then we had, uh, uh, today we'll cover questions that are more theological in nature. Now what's happened is more questions have been coming in uh, since we started this. Uh, and, uh, and so we really will not be able to address all the questions here on Sunday morning. Uh, so we'll just cover about, you know, maybe a handful of them, 10, 11 of them this morning. Uh, and, uh, um, but we will uh, compile all of this into a little publication like we always do. <laughs> Put them in a little publication and give it out in print so that uh, you could use it, you could read it, um, and, um, uh, and get to know what Scripture says or what is, is the mind of God concerning different things. Um, so we're going to just do some of the questions on theology that have come in. Uh, there's no particular order of importance. I just picked up questions um, that uh, out of the full list that we had that I thought would be useful to cover in, uh, in a uh, church setting. The first question on theology is this, God's will and his sovereignty. Can we have some clarification on how is God sovereign over creation? Especially in the light of uh, Exodus 4.11, and there's some scriptures quoted here, Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, Isaiah 45.7. Uh, do we come into the world exactly the way God intend, intended us to be? How is God sovereign over situations in cases of calamities, accidents, murder, uh, rape, stillborn, etc.? Uh, is it really correct to say God permitted and loved it? That's a very deep question. Um, just to make it simple for us to understand, uh, I think the best way for us to understand the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man is to use the analogy of an owner and a tenant. Uh, many of us would have uh, rented maybe a home, apartment, or some sort of a building from an owner, and we've become tenants. Now, uh, the owner and the tenant, they sign a lease agreement or a rental agreement. The terms of this agreement are, are, are on which the tenant uses the place. So there's an agreement there. But once the tenant moves in, who's responsible for what goes on inside that home? The owner or the tenant? Pretty obvious, it's the tenant. The owner has provided a door and a lock for the door, but if the tenant leaves the door open and a thief comes in at night and takes things away, is it right for him to say, it is the will of the owner <laughs> that this should happen? Be it unto me according to thy will. It's not right. The door was provided, the lock was given, he had to keep the door closed. If the tenant you know, doesn't clean the place and the home gets infested with cockroaches and mice and all of that, is it right for the tenant to say, this is his will? <laughs> the owner has sent a blessing to me. Is it right? No. So what goes on in there is really the responsibility of the tenant. But the owner is sovereign. He still owns the place. It's still in his name. Now, normally, an owner, I'm saying normally because there are some abnormalities, but normally... The owner would not walk into the house anytime unless he's invited by the tenant. The tenant might say, sir, could you come and just visit us or come and have a look at this. When the, when the tenant invites the owner, the owner comes. Similarly, the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We invite God into the things, the happenings of our lives. It's our call. We need to invite him in. 
uh, no owner would just barge in there unless there is a necessity, unless there is a need, he would step in. But in the normal course of things, he comes when he's invited. That's why we pray. That's what we invite him in, uh, invite him in into our daily sit- situations and so on. So this kind of describes the relationship that sovereign God has on the earth with people, with you and me here. In Psalm 115, uh, verse 3 says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. So God does whatever he pleases. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. But in that same psalm, down in the 16th verse of Psalm 115, it says, The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. So the earth, he has put you and me in charge. So understand this about the sovereignty of God, that God is so secure in his sovereignty, he is not afraid to give up control. Some of us want to secure God's sovereignty. He says, chill, relax. I am secure in my sovereignty. I'm not afraid to give up control. The earth he has given to the children of men. So who is responsible for what goes on the earth? You and I. He's put us in charge. Now, to add to the many factors that are working on the earth, we need to keep in mind that the fall happens. Man opened the door for Satan and sin and all of those things to come into this world. It was not the will of God. God never said, Satan, thou shalt go. Or, you know, God never did that. Man opened the door. But notice that even though God was sovereign, he didn't intervene. Now, at least when Eve was going to pluck the fruit, he could have made the tree grow up higher. You know? She couldn't reach it. He'd have saved us all a lot of trouble, you know. He, I'm sure he could have done that with a snap of a finger. <laughs> but he didn't do it. He just let it happen. So what does that teach you and me? He is still sovereign, but he respects your choices, our choices. He respects it. He's put us in charge on the earth. He knew the dire consequences of such a decision. That when Adam and Eve would sin, uh, there would be devastation. On the human race because sickness and disease and Satan enter in and create havoc. But he still didn't jump in on the scene. What he did do is that by his foreknowledge he already prepared the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He knew what was going to happen. He already got the answer ready. Before the foundation of the world he already established a kingdom in which redeemed people will belong. He already planned that. So in his sovereignty, he planned these things, but he didn't stop man from making choices. Uh, So today, there are at least five major factors that influence what goes on in the earth. First of all, there is the fact that God, as sovereign, carries out his divine purposes. So there are things that God does, nobody asks him to do. He sent the savior of the world. He will come and, uh, you know, the rapture will happen. He will establish the kingdom on the earth. Whether you, you and I pray or not, he will still do those things. Secondly, there is you and me who co-work, who partner with God to see his kingdom come. That's why you and I are salt and light. That means we go into a situation that we don't like and we say, no, with God I'm going to bring about change. So that's another important factor that you and I, as part of the kingdom, are bringing change into this world. Thirdly, in the human, uh, what's, going, what's happening in the world is the consequence of the fall. There, ever since the fall, there has been injected into our world a complete process of decay. Romans, the eighth chapter, calls it corruption. All of creation was subject to corruption. Very simple thing. In the early days, they lived 700, 800, 900 years. Today, if you make it to 90, you've done good. There's just been a great process of corruption. Everything's been going down. The genes in the genetic system also has been touched by this. And so there are abnormalities. God never formed our genes with abnormalities. But the consequence of the fall is that every sphere of human life has been affected. So also the human gene, the genetic system has been affected. So people are born with abnormalities. And we can't blame God for that. It's part of the fall. 
There are a lot of things that happen in creation which God never intended, but have come because of the process of corruption. The third thing, the fourth thing is this, there's a choice of sinful man. People all around us are making choices and they're not always right. Uh, they're driven by sin and a, a wrong motivation. And so there are the consequences of those choices. Uh, choices made by people in authority, in government, uh, affect multitudes of people. They're not necessarily choices that are god godly. They could be wrong and they, they have a negative impact on people's lives. And number five is there is the direct work of demonic spirits. So there is a devil that's affecting uh, whatever is happening on the earth, things that are happening on the earth. The devil affects human bodies, he affects the thinking, he affects choices, uh, so many things that the devil does. So the, what we see happening on the earth around us in our situations must be examined and interpreted in that light. It is wrong to say everything that it is God's doing. Because he has put us in charge. And there are several other factors that we have invited into this world which are at work. So, for a child that's being born, what is God's perfect will? God wants the child to be perfectly normal. God wants the child, God has a dream and a purpose. Like it says in Psalm 139, he has a purpose for the child. But, there is the process of corruption that came in because of the fall. There is the working of evil spirits. To a woman who was bent over, Jesus said, Satan has bound you. He didn't say, God had made you like this. He said, Satan has bound you. So her condition was not the will of God. It was the working of evil spirits that it caused her to be that way. So when a child is born that deformed, abnormality, we, it is wrong for us to say God did it. No, there are several factors. Our genes are affected by the process of decay. There could be demonic spirits at work that are causing different things happening. And thirdly, there could be human error. Maybe uh, the mother was not careful, something happened. Or the doctor was not careful, something happened during the process of delivery. You can't blame God for that. Are you with me so far? So there is an element of responsibility that you and I must take in understanding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. You know, if any one of your children come back to you and say, you know, I did my exam, I got 40, and this is the will of God. <laughs> I mean, what would you as a parent do? You would take them, you would take the packets, and next time, better study hard. <laughs> because you know that 40 can move to 80 with just a little bit of effort on their side. And this will of God is just a cop-out. Right? Get, the sense, get them right, you know. You need to work hard. Your marks will move up. Can't blame the sovereign will of God. <laughs> Gave me 40 marks. No. The same way, just as we understand everyday situations like that, understand bigger things in a very similar manner, that there is God who is sovereign, but you and I have a responsibility. In the cases of calamities and accidents and murder, yes, it is true that innocent people are affected, but these same factors come into effect. You know, the Lord Jesus and his disciples were doing a very godly thing. They were bringing the kingdom of God on the earth. And they just happened to get into a boat and, 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 and go across the lake. But suddenly a storm came. Now these were godly people. They didn't deserve the storm. But the storm still happened. And you don't find Jesus saying, this is the sovereign will of God, boys. <laughs> you don't find him praying that prayer. What does he do? He stands up in faith and dominates the environment, what's happening. So that's a lesson for you and me. That yes, we are in a fallen world. Every believer is living in a fallen world. So there are things that are going to happen around us which are not the will of God. They're caused because of the process of decay, because of working of evil, demonic powers, because of... Um, the choices of sinful man around us, and we by faith must arise and dominate these things and not blame God for it. Amen? So calamities happen. These things happen because we are in a fallen world. Let me just, uh, now, there are some cases where God uses things. For example, in the case of judgment, God will use natural elements to get the attention of man. Yes, he does that in the case of judgment. But you and I don't have to worry about that because we're not living that way. We are doing our best to seek the Lord. So we are not exposing ourselves to 
the judgment or the wrath of God. But when man is walking in sin, there are times when God does use natural elements and the things in this world to get our attention, to bring us to a place. But always remember that mercy triumphs over judgment, meaning in that moment, if there is repentance, his mercy will always prevail. A judgment will be stayed. Let me wrap this up by saying that in the Christian world, there are two main streams of theology. Um, there is what is known as Calvinism. Because it was this line of theology and thinking was started by a man named John Calvin in the early 1500s. And basically, Calvin said that everything happens in the world by the direct intent of God and the will of God. So a person is saved because God chose him. A person goes to hell because God wanted him to go to hell. So that was his theology and he interpreted everything right from salvation uh, to redemption, everything he interpreted from that standpoint and that some believers embrace and teach that is Calvinism, Calvinistic theology. Where there, is, there is no room for man making a choice. It is all God ordained. Everything happens because God wanted it to happen. So just stay there. Whatever happens, God happens. God made it. But then about 60 years later came a man named Jacobus Arminius, Arminian, Arminius who studied Calvinistic theology. Then he went back to the book of Romans. He, he looked at the book of Romans and then he said, no, Calvin is not right because I see clearly that there is the element of human choice. We are responsible to respond to the grace of God. God takes the first step always by his grace but man is responsible for responding to that grace. So that's another branch of theology called Armenian theology that tells us that God is sovereign, so he initiates things by his grace, but he always respects human choice. So if you ask me what I feel of where we lean on, we lean on, on the Armenian theology. I think uh, uh, we understand that God is sovereign, but he respects human choice. And we interpret everything and we do our work and ministry from that perspective. Question number two. Here's another tough one. Is it right for women to preach and teach God's word? Let's take a vote. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's just try to understand this. Number firstly, we must understand that in Christ there is equality in the grace and the empowering of God. So in Christ, Galatians 3.28 says, in Christ there is neither male nor female. So the grace God gives to us, the redemptive work of God, the empowering of his spirit is given equally to men and women. God doesn't say, you're a man, so I give you a little bit more. You're a woman, so slightly less. No. It's the same measure of grace, same empowering of his spirit, same measure of his love. Everything is given equally to male and female in Christ. There's no, he doesn't, there's no differentiation based on gender. That's first thing. Secondly, you see that in New Testament ministry, it's never restricted to males only. Many scriptures, especially that is translated men or man, actually means people. For example, in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, man shall not live by Bread alone. So what do women live by then? <laughs> yeah. They take the butter. <laughs> so man eats the bread, the women have the butter. No. That word man in the Greek is anthropos, which simply means mankind, humankind. It is gender neutral, it's male and female. So when Jesus said man, he meant people. People will not live by bread alone. Now that same word man continues in the New Testament in the context of ministry. For example, in 1 Timothy, um, uh, let me, let me, yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2, 2 Timothy 2, 2, when Paul is telling Timothy, the things which you have learned from me, commit thou to faithful men. That word is anthropos. So he's not saying passes only to men. He's saying, pass it on to other people. Meaning, get other people trained in the very things I have trained you in. Male and female. Anthropos, same word. 
Commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That means male and female can also teach others. Same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 11. It says, in talking about the fivefold gifts of apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. It says, and he gave gifts to men. That word men or man there is anthropos, means male and female. So he gave these gifts to people. What he did it give? And he gave to some. That word some could be male or female. Doesn't just only mean male. He gave some, male or female, to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. So the fivefold ministry also includes male and female. Or if you go to 1 Timothy, the third chapter, talking about bishops. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, if any, if, if any man desire the office of a bishop, that word man, it's, it's literally in the Greek, simply means if any, not male. It doesn't re restrict it to male. If any desire the office of a bishop, that means a man or a woman can be a bishop, meaning a spiritual leader. Word bishop, episcopos, a spiritual leader. So New Testament ministry is never restricted to male only. Male and female are included. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul himself. Paul, in his ministry team, had women. When he went to Corinth, he had a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, teaching, ministering with him. In Romans 16, when he lists the different names of people who are working with him, he lists at least two women. One was Phoebe, and he calls her a minister of God. Another was a woman named Junia. He calls her an apostle. This is in Romans 16. So even Paul and his ministry team had both men and women working with him. So we cannot say that Paul was only biased toward men in ministry. It would be incorrect. So then comes the two big questions. How do we interpret? Are you all with me so far? Yes. How do we interpret the two most controversial scriptures? which is 1 Corinthians 14th chapter and the 34th verse, where Paul says, let the women remain chup-chop in church. <laughs> he said, let the women keep silent in the church. And if they have any questions, let them ask their husbands at home. So now many people use this verse, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, saying, see, Paul said women keep silent in the church, so women cannot preach. But that's not what he meant. Because the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians addresses a local congregation. And he's talking about how to maintain order in the service. And there are three times he says, keep silent. Not just once. But we only pick up the, the one that had to do with women. Let the women keep silent. But before that, he said two, more two times he said, keep silent. One, he said, if anybody gives a message in tongues, but there is no interpreter, let him keep silent. See, he already told somebody to keep silent. Second, he said, if in that same chapter, if there are three or four of you, you know, let the prophet speak by two or three. And if anything is revealed to another, let the first one keep silent. So now again, he's saying, listen. The four or five of you have a revelation, you have a word of prophecy, you take turns. But when you're done, then keep silent. Let the other person who's received inspiration be given a chance to speak. So this injunction of keep silent is, is, is addressed for three different situations. One is about don't give a message in tongues if there is nobody to, who will interpret. So keep silent. But it does not prohibit the use of tongues. Because in the rest of the chapter he says, I want you all to speak in tongues. Uh, do not forbid to speak in tongues and so on. But in this particular case he says, if there's nobody to interpret, don't give a message publicly in tongues. Secondly, prophecy. He says, I want you all to prophesy. You may all prophesy one by one. All that. But, suppose you're taking turns and you've done your part. And there's another person who's received, who's received a revelation. Then you keep silent. So that you can give the other person a chance. So we must understand that this injunction to keep silent is really in all, to maintain order in the church. So likewise, he says, women, listen, if you have some questions, this pastor is talking about the sovereignty of God and all of that. And, and, and if you have questions on that, don't begin a discussion right there. 
go home so remain silent while you're in the service go home discuss it at home that's why he says keep silent the other very controversial passage again is first Tim- first timothy chapter 2 verses 11 to 15 where he talks about men praying and worshiping god and women dressing in in a godly manner and then he continues i would not permit a woman to teach but i want her to keep silent in the church so that she does not usurp authority and then he talks about the fact that listen you know eve was the one who was deceived not adam but the consequence came upon the whole human race and he goes into using that as an illustration of why he says you know woman just just relax let the man take the lead what's the point there the real point there is for a woman not to overthrow authority and that's what he's addressing right in in the in the context of the culture of those days if i was speaking and a man had a question about what i was saying he had the right to interpret the spe- interrupt the speaker and say excuse me uh, you know this is i have this 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 questions on what you're saying he had the right to interpret uh, interrupt the the speaker and he could do that it was open to do that but so in that situation paul is saying listen women don't do that you stay in submission you don't do the same thing men do you just learn in a th- from the authority god has placed over there from the man who's speaking just learn receive that you take that back with you and and walk in submission to authority so there is while there is equal grace for all of us in the body there is a a, a structure a government that god has established for different areas of life for male and female there is god's government which paul talks about in 1 corinthians 11 the head of the woman is the man So there is an order there and so he wants us to maintain that order and he says women don't usurp authority don't do that so we understand first timothy 2 it has to be interpreted in the rest of scripture we cannot let one scripture override the rest of scripture where we see god using women but we interpret that one scripture in the light of the rest of scripture and that's how we answer to that question number 3 can a believer have a demon there are different levels of demonization if you as you'll see in the little picture there there is what we call as influence and these are just terminologies put up there for us to understand uh, don't get too hung up on the actual terminology influence there's demonic influence we all face it all the time there is um, there are temptations there are uh, intimidations the devil comes against us that's demonic influence a certain level of demonization Then there is oppression which means the devil is really working hard he may be oppressing our body or mind or holding people in bondage and addictive uh, addictions to various things and so on um strongholds in their lives or behavior uh that's what we call as oppression then we move to a higher degree of demonization which is called possession here the evil spirit or spirits are inhabiting the person and they are in a state of manifestation whether it's intermittent sometimes or it's continuous as all the time for the instance the demoniac at gadara was living among caves and eating away people's dogs and cats he was constantly demonized possessed right he was always that way he was insane all the time that's possession and then there's empowerment that people are actually empowered by demonic powers to do signs wonders things like that for a believer the first two are relevant we as believers can be influenced we all face temptation things like that we could be oppressed that means the devil is affecting our body and mind the devil cannot devils cannot inhabit our spirit because it is the house of the spirit of god himself so light and darkness will not dwell together but our bodies or our minds can be affected by the working of evil spirits now in the process of deliverance which is basically setting people free when you're ministering to a believer and you're ministering deliverance sometimes the manifestation that means what happens in the process of deliverance can be identical to somebody who's demon possessed and being delivered they both might you know cringe and fall and shake whatever the manifestation looks identical but it doesn't mean the believer is possessed they just oppressed but just the fact that the process of deliverance the person manifests in a very similar manner okay so the answer to the question is no a believer cannot be demon possessed if you go, speaking using this terminology but a believer definitely can be influenced and oppressed by evil spirits 
Question number four. Salvation. What happens to those who do not believe? It is true that Christ in heaven interceding for us and has set aside a place for each of us who believe in him. What happens to the other half of population, non-Christians, that do not believe in him? What happens to the soul when they pass away from the face of this earth? So basically the question is what happens to a person who doesn't believe in Jesus? What happens to them? Um, you and I know that salvation is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says it's very emphatic in that. In uh, Acts 4 and verse 12, there is no salvation in anyone else except through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we know. And uh, how God is going to address situations that people have never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus, we will leave that to God rather than speculating an answer for that. Now when a believer dies, his or her spirit, uh, the spirit has no gender, just here on earth the body has gender, but when a person dies, a believer dies, immediately they, his spirit goes to be with the Lord. Paul said that many times, for instance, he says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 8, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Immediate. I'm going there. It says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I'm going to be with the Lord. When an unbeliever dies, somebody who's never embraced Jesus Christ, his spirit goes to Hades, hell. The New Testament calls it Hades. And awaits the great white throne judgment that Revelation 20, chapter 20, verses 15 onwards talks about. So an unsaved unsaved person, his spirit goes to hell. It's held there until the great white throne judgment, which happens at the end of the millennium of the thousand year reign of Jesus when they will all the, uh, the death and hell will give up its dead and they will be judged and then cast into a lake of fire that is described in Revelation 20 and verse 15, 10 to 15. So both hell and death will be cast into a lake of fire. Satan will be bound and cast into a lake of fire. Question number five. Why do we not observe the seventh Saturday as the Sabbath? Now the old covenant clearly states the observance of the Sabbath. So under the old covenant people observed the the seventh day, which is our Saturday, as the Sabbath, the day of rest unto the Lord. But in the new covenant, uh, through the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross, Colossians 2.14 says, He has removed the requirements out of the way. That means these old covenant requirements no longer hold for us in the new covenant. We are in a new covenant. Those requirements don't hold anymore. He's taken it out of the way through the cross, including the keeping of the Sabbath. That's why in Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23, Paul says, you know, we don't observe Sabbaths. We don't observe holy days. We don't do those things. We are free from those those kinds of things. Instead, uh, Romans 14, verses 4 through 8 says, each person chooses what day he wants to observe. It's fine. You want to observe one particular day to the Lord, that's up to you. If you want to observe every day unto the Lord, that's fine. So what we see in the New Testament is in honor of the first day of the week on which the Lord rose up, the day of resurrection, believers started gathering together on the first day of the week and they called it the Lord's Day. So that's become the practice. And so we gather together on the first day of the week, which is the resurrection day or the Lord's Day. Uh, to worship together. But God is not particular that you only meet on Sunday. In some parts of the world, they meet on Fridays or whatever. You, know, you could do any day, but you, you, you decide to come together and worship the Lord. Next two questions I'll do together. These are on dreams. When we get dreams, how can we tell which of them is from God and which are not? Question seven, dreams. What is your opinion on people having sexual dreams? We're going to answer both these questions together. You know, dreams can happen for one of three reasons. One, it could be our own mind at work. And I'm not a psychologist, but we understand that our own mind is at work. And uh, these are, could be the result of the activities, the fears, the anxieties that are going on within us. And they're expressed in dreams. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 3 says, through much activity, uh, the dream comes because of much activity. So there are things that happen, dreams that happen because of that. Secondly, we know that God can speak through dreams. So uh, there are dreams that are specifically God speaking to us, uh, as in the book of Job 33, verses 14 to 70, God speaks to us through dreams. The third is that even the enemy, the devil, can interject our uh, dream 
dreams and bring in his thoughts and his things, which also doesn't have to happen to us, but it, it is possible that the enemy can interject there. So how do you know that a dream is from God? Here are some, some things that I do in order to determine if something is from God. Uh, is it an overwhelming sense that God has spoken? So when you wake up and you have this dream, is it a sense that yeah, God has spoken? It's, it's awesome. I can feel the presence of God with those dreams. There is this sense of awe that God is speaking and I need to pay attention. Um, uh, even in dreams that warn us or alert us, there is the sense that God is still on our side. It's not a morbid fear uh, or a fear of evil that, that's, that, that, le- that you're left behind with once you have the dream, but a sense that God is speaking, although, even though it might be a warning, it might be an alert to some, some sort of a danger, but there is that sense of hope. Then you know that God is speaking. Number three, uh, the meaning becomes apparent, either by you praying about it or some, you sharing with somebody and they help you interpret. So God doesn't speak to keep us in the dark. He speaks so, to, to, to reveal something to us. So if you're able to get the meaning, then, then obviously God is speaking. Now, uh, I also do a check that there is no obvious activity that I was involved in that would have sparked this dream. So, you know, if I was busy playing football and I had a dream of me playing football, then it's okay, you know, I won't take that very seriously, you know, because I was playing and that came in the dream, it's okay. But if I was not actually doing something related to the dream, then I would take it seriously because I know it's, it could not have been sparked by my own activity during the day or that week. So here are some checks I do, and then if I have a doubt about a dream, I'm not able to get the interpretation, I just normally leave it aside and see if that dream recurs, because if God wants to get my attention, he will repeat it, he'll get my attention. But if it doesn't repeat, I just let it go. I don't let dreams control my life. About sexual dreams, I'm not a psychologist, and so I can't comment on the technical and the scientific uh, perspective. But here's what I can suggest to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, what do you do when you have these kinds of sexual dreams? Uh, first of all, you cleanse yourself from the effect of such dreams. You wake up, you know you've, you've seen stuff in your dream that is not nice. It's, um, it's unclean, sometimes ungodly. Uh, you just um, cleanse yourself from the effect of such dreams. Uh, refuse to allow that influence or your thought process. Secondly, fill your mind during the day with God's word, worship, music, and so on, so that your, all your emotions are actually set on godly things during the course of the day. And thirdly, when you go to sleep, cover, you pray your mind, you cover yourself and say, I, ref- I consecrate my mind and even my dreams unto God. I refuse, uh, I will not allow the enemy to touch my dreams. So these three simple things, I can actually totally, elim- totally eliminate or just drastically reduce these ungodly dreams that might happen. I'm going to uh, skip a couple of questions. I'm going to skip eight and nine. I'll just go down to question number 10. And uh, I want to encourage you to, you know, to just pick this up from online and you'll get some answers to other questions here. I'll go to question number 10, depression. I'm a born-again Christian who, has, who, who is on antidepressants for long years. Right now, even if I'm under medication, I'm leading quite a normal life. But I want to consult a Christian psychiatrist so that I can decide on a new treatment course so as not to depend on antidepressants throughout my life. What can you suggest for me as a pastor to overcome depression in my life? Do I have to depend on med- medicines throughout my life? I'm a person who desires to live with the fullness that God has designed for me. Can you suggest a lifestyle for me to win over this deadly stuff? So our response will be twofold. First, we do not reject uh, medical help. So if your body is sick, you'd go to a doctor who can treat your body. If your mind is sick, go to a doctor who can treat your mind. So don't stay away from that. Go to a physician, a clinical psychiatrist. Let them examine you and let them help you with the treatment plan. And you follow that plan. I mean, if they give you some medications, go ahead and take it. Now, while you're doing that, it's important to understand that all healing comes from God. It comes from His presence. So while that's happening in the natural, you're doing what you can in the natural, you must also actively engage with God to receive healing and wholeness for, uh, for your emotional health. So here's what you can do. You understand by reading good Christian books how you deal with a problem. We have a book called Conquest of the Mind that deals with some of these things. Joyce Meyer has a book called The Battlefield of the Mind. There are other 
good Christian ministries that have um, books that help you deal with the problems of the mind. So read that. So you understand, okay, this is what my problem is. This is how I deal with it. And next month, we're doing a, doing a three-part series on free at last. And one of them will be dealing with emotional bondages. People can come into emotional bondages and get enslaved emotionally, either uh, in affairs, in addictions, in all emotional things. And, and, and we'll be talking about how to get free from those things. So understand biblically what is the cause and how to get free. Secondly, have somebody journey with you, maybe a pastor or a counselor, because while there are times God heals instantly, there is healing is also a process. And so it's great to have somebody journey with you into your healing and wholeness emotionally. It's very difficult to go alone in this. So have a pastor, have a counselor, journey with you, meet them regularly, be open, be honest, and say, this is what is happening. They're going to help you go through and journey into wholeness. Um, and thirdly, it's so important, spend time in the presence of God. Because healing comes from Him, ultimately. People are here to help you, which is important. Don't reject it. But healing comes from God. You need to be in His presence. His presence makes us whole. Healing comes to us. So the answer to this question is, while you're getting help from your psychiatrist and so on, journey with a spiritual counselor, a mentor, into wholeness. And then at the right time, you can get off the medication once you know you're perfectly whole. Here's a question on suicide. I'll just do two more questions and then we're done. This one's on suicide. The last one's on creation. Committing suicide. What if we are undergoing depression and commit suicide? Does God accept it? Will the soul go to heaven or hell if the soul knew Jesus is a personal savior? Would it be covetous to say Jesus is my personal savior yet I want to end my life? Sometimes the devil torments us when we stand up for something and these things inflict conflict of interest in us. In that moment of weakness, if life comes to an end, will we be forgiven? Now, let's, I think we will all agree that as believers, we need to walk by faith, no matter how difficult the situations in life are. And it would, would really be an act of covetous if we end our lives because of the pressure of things. It would not be the right thing. God does not want that. And yet the reality is sometimes people go through circumstances and situations where the pressure is so intense, they buckle under the pressure and they take a drastic step to end their life. So the question is, where will they go? They've been a believer all their life. They've walked with God. They love Jesus. And they're born again. But because of the circumstances, for whatever reason, they've given in. They take their own life. They commit suicide. Where will they go? There is only one sin that sends a person to hell. What is it? Not receiving Jesus as their savior. That's the only sin that sends a person to hell. Not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think of this with me. Suppose you, you're a believer. Or somebody is a believer. He loves the Lord. He's born again. He's walking with the Lord. And he just happens to look lustfully at a girl. And at that very moment, the rapture happens. <laughs> I mean, what's going to happen to him? Or, here's a believer, good believer, serving in church, everything. But he just happens to speak a lie. And that moment, the rapture happens. What do you think is going to happen to that person? Do you think the Lord will leave them behind? Or do you think they will still make it to heaven? The Bible tells us, um, for instance, let's quote some scriptures here from Hebrews, um, that the redemption Jesus provided in Hebrews 9.12 is eternal. Hebrews 7.25 says he saves us to the uttermost. And Hebrews 10.14 says he's already perfected us forever. So when you're in Christ, this is your state. You've been perfected. The fact that you commit a sin does not alter that. What alters that is if you willfully go away from Jesus, deny the Lord, 
which is addressed in Hebrews chapter 6 and again in Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 6, he says, if we have once tasted the good things of the kingdom of God and then we turn away and trample underfoot the Son of God, then there is no more repentance for us. Hebrews 10, 38 says, God says, the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, then my soul has no pleasure in him. So if I willfully walk away and deny Jesus Christ, that's when I, I'm stepping out of my place in Christ. So the answer to this question is, Yes, it's not a nice thing for a believer to commit suicide. It's an act of covetousness. But the reality is, some, if it does happen, that person is not going to lose their salvation because of that one deed. Because what takes them to heaven is their faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, they have believed in Jesus. The last question is on creation. I'll, cl I'll close with this. Going by biblical records, creation of Adam and Eve dates to approximately 5000 BC. However, fossil evidence shows that man has been around for a few million years. As a Christian, I'm troubled to see such a big difference. My response to this may be simplistic, but it's sufficient. It satisfies me. I hope it satisfies you. Imagine yourself in the Garden of Eden. The second week after creation, God brings Adam and Eve to you and says, Hey, what do you think? How old these people are? You look at them and say, Probably 20, 30, 40 years. Because Adam was not a little boy running in his diaper, you know. He was created as a man. So you might guess maybe 30, 40 years. You bring the scientist and he runs all this scientific thing, looks at the chromosome, this, that, and he says, you know, Adam must be two million so many years. God says, good guess. I just made them a few days ago. <laughs> so God created everything in a mature state. So imagine God brought you into the Garden of Eden and he showed you all those animals and, you know, right from a little small crawling creature to these big huge elephants and, and all of these vegetation, everything. And he says, you know, take a guess. How old are these things? So you run, we run all our scientific tests and all that. And so, you know, this is a result of an evolutionary process that began with a big bang somewhere in three, five, you know, five million years ago. There was a cosmic explosion, and, and through this process of evolution over millions of years, this huge elephant has arrived. God says, Good guess. I just created them last week. So while we do not discredit our scientific methods, and they're very valid, they cannot be calibrated to accommodate this one particular thing where God in an instant created everything in an extremely mature state. You know, any instrument you want to use, you have to calibrate. You have to find it zero and its minimum and maximum. But in our calibration of our measuring of historical time, we cannot accommodate the fact that Almighty God, in a moment, created everything in a mature state. doesn't fit our calibration. So I'm not disproving the, fa the, 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 the facts, the, 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 the scientific process. It's very valid. But when God created things, Everything was very mature. So it talks about the brilliance of God. That in a moment of time, he could compress what our reasoning takes five million years. He can do it in less than five milliseconds. Get it all done. Amen? I want us to take a few moments to just worship God, this great God. Who alone can do this. Who alone can, in a moment, compress what we think will take millions of years. To accomplish. You know, he has never changed in his power. He could do the same thing in your life and mine today. And he actually promises to do that. He says, The years the locust has eaten, I will restore. 
Some of us may think back about our life and say, God, so many years have gone. And God says, relax. I can compress in an instant what may have taken many years, humanly speaking, to accomplish. I can make it happen. That's our God. Amen? So I want us to just take a moment, a few moments just to worship God and just exalt Him in your life. And if there are people here this morning and you're saying, God, I, I just feel a lot of my time is gone. Would you just reach out to Him in faith and say, God, I'm standing here in time. But you're so much greater than time. Lord, you can compress in a moment in my life what may have normally take many years to accomplish, you can just make it happen. Would you just worship Him and extend your faith toward Him this afternoon and trust Him to do that for you? He's such an awesome God. If you're here this afternoon and you're feeling that depression, you're feeling that sense of hopelessness, you're in a state where emotionally you're just totally shaken, uh, we just want to pray with you. I'm going to ask people around you to pray with you right where you are. We just want that depression to lift and the shalom of God, the peace of God to flood your heart and mind and the hope of God to fill your heart and mind. So there's anyone here and you just say, I just need prayer. I, I, I feel really down. I, I feel hopeless at this moment. I'm depressed. And I'll just appreciate some prayer for me that God would touch my life now. I just want you to put your hand up and I'm going to ask people around you just to pray with you. So just put your hand up and just look around you. Uh, just see the person right there. There's somebody there. There's somebody there. Just put your hand up and just go to them and just, just pray and say, God, let this heaviness, let this depression lift off of their life. Just turn around. There's somebody there. God, let the peace of God fill their minds. We just break off all despair, hopelessness, even suicidal feelings. We just break it off. Oh God, just pray for them. Just pray for them. Anybody up in the balcony, just lift your hand up. Just, just, just let somebody come and pray with you. And just pray for them. Just pray for them. Lord, we just ask for your peace. We ask that every heaviness and despair and hopelessness and to be broken off their minds, their feelings, their emotions. We ask for your hope. We ask for your peace. We ask for your life to flood their emotions, their minds. Lord, do only what you can do for them. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.